You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So while you all are finishing communion, I'm going to invite Dr. Tamisha Tyler, who is one of my very good friends, but also an amazing scholar and all around awesome person um, to sit with me. And Tamisha is Dr. Tyler as of Tuesday. She defended her dissertation um, on Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And that's part of what we're gonna talk about today. But first, I am going to have her give a little overview of who she is and her background with art and religion. And then I'll give you a quick little overview of who I am and my background with art and religion. So you know that we're not just shooting from the hip, although that's fine too, but that we actually are both trained in this subject and we actually have spent a lot of money to be able to talk about it, probably way too much money. Um, And then I'll give a brief overview, um, very brief of the history of art and religion, and a little bit um, of an intro into art as as a prophetic action. And then we're gonna talk about Tamisha's dissertation. Sound good? All hearts clear? Cool, okay. Hi everyone, my name is Tamisha. I am supposed to talk about my history with art because I remembered everything she just said. (laughs) Um, I started writing poetry in elementary school Writing was the first way that I knew how to articulate myself and who I was feeling. I often would say writing was my first language because if I got in an argument with you, you would definitely get a letter of how I felt. I was a weird kid. Um, (laughs) But through that, I learned just that there are elements and pockets of creativity that kind of get at some of the crevices of who you are that you can't really articulate any any other way. Um, And I learned that very young. So that kind of helped me in my trajectory um, growing up. Um, spent a lot of time doing different things here and there, including, you know, writing the church plays, those were fun. Um, just engaging in the arts and religion. Um, I have a history in literature. My undergrad degree is in uh, Black studies, focusing on African-American literature. Um, ended up by happenstance in seminary several years later, where I studied worship theology and the arts. Um, had the opportunity to serve as a uh, worship coordinator, worship director of different churches. And then I ended up starting my PhD program. And during that time, I also served as the head liturgist for a year long project called the Subversive Liturgy Project, where we practiced um, liturgy as protest. And we held services in front of the Pasadena police station for a year following the liturgical calendar in protest of an officers involved killing that happened uh, our first week of school. So since then, I've continued to write, engaging with organizations like Level Ground, who we both are connected to, and um, served as the executive director of Arts, Religion, and Culture, which is a flagship organization for the field of theopoetics, which we'll talk about in a bit. And I also serve as a board member, and I teach at a really cool artist retreat center in Washington. So that's me. It's nice to see you all here. And the name of the Washington site is? Oh, uh, Grunwald Guild. So that's Grunwald Guild, like the German Grunwald. Yeah, if you are interested in visiting, going on a retreat, doing an artist in residence, any of that, just talk to me after. It's a really cool place. 
And I also have degrees in religion and art. We met in the program at Fuller, but I grew up in evangelicalism, but both my parents are artists. So this conversation has been a lifelong conversation for me. Um, my undergrad degrees are in theater and religion, and I hold now three master's degrees, um, two of which are in art and religion. And I'm currently a PhD student at Claremont where I do gender studies and religion, but art definitely comes into play with my work as well. So here's, where did I put my phone? Here is the little brief intro on the history of art and religion. It is very brief. This is a huge long, like 1500 or year longer thing. So I'm not gonna give you all of the history, but um, I'm quoting from a book by a artist professor named James Elkin. And his book is called The Strange Place of Religion in Contemporary Art. It's one of the pieces that I used for my master thesis at Fuller that really helped me understand or better understand the weird relationship religion and art have in our contemporary context. Um, so this is a quote from Elkins. Once upon a time, but really in every place and every time, art was religion and religion was art. Ritual and performance undergird both. From their origins, art and religion were paired together. They were birthed together as expressions of each other. Even in the origins of Christianity, art played a major role in the dissemination of religious belief, thought, and practice. There were whole sections of Christianity's sacred texts that are art forms and stories. Almost all of it, the prophets, the Psalms, Job, the histories, they're all connected to some form of art and ritual practice. This bounded relationship between these two continues until the Renaissance period, where even as the majority of the pieces that are being created are commissioned by the church and highlight Christianity or Greek or Roman religion, the way in which art is being understood begins to change. Even with the church as this patron, art is no longer subservient to religious practice anymore. Going back to Elkins, the meaning of art has changed, and for the first time, it becomes possible to make visual objects or musical objects that are glorified, glorify the artist, and even provoke the viewer to think more about the artist and their skills and their thoughts than the artwork itself. This division between art and religion continues to grow post-Renaissance, so that by the time we arrive at the 20th century, the two for most people seem as far apart as, as um, possible, if not completely opposed to each other. And yet, in spite of the perceived distance and animosity, religion and art still, when deeply engaged, bear the marks of each other and their previous bindings. Not only that, but when given the chance, they can be radical and transformative conversation partners. And that's what we're going to be engaging with in the next few weeks is that notion of art and religious practice being radical conversation partners. Um, specifically, I've invited Tamisha and then two other artists for next week to kind of highlight and engage with that dialogue. Um, all of us have been raised in some form of conservative Christianity and engage or talk about art that challenges notions of conservative Christianity and act as prophetic insight, critique, or even parody of the white patriarchal nationalist Christianity forms that we're seeing pretty readily in our country right now. 
The prophetic role of art uses its voice to speak and highlight things that are within the cultural context. Films like Don't Look Up or The Village or even the newest Marvel movie often offer some kind of critique to the culture and sometimes critique to the church. Um, and they come into those conversations sideways. They don't come straight on like you would have a conversation where it becomes very volatile and people tend to shut down, but they come in through a back door, much like the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel, where after David has raped Bathsheba and she has become pregnant as a result of that non-consensual sex, um, and the baby is sick, and David goes to prophet Nathan and he says, well, the baby did live or die. And instead of telling David, the baby will live or die, Nathan tells David a story about a rich ruler who lived ne lives next door to a poor family. And the poor family has one sheep. The rich ruler has many flock. And the rich ruler has a friend come visit. And instead of using one of his many flock, he goes and steals this one precious animal that this family next door has and kills it and gives it to his guest. And Nathan uses that story to tell David, you have sinned, you have raped and stolen somebody else's spouse and you've gone about hiding it. And this is the answer to your question. It's not a straightforward answer, although he ultimately does give him a straightforward answer and says, yes, the child will die as a punishment for your choices. But he tells them a story first, and that's the role that the prophets often play in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is this idea of telling stories in a sideways way to highlight the truth. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in terms of art as a prophetic action in the culture. Art often tells these stories in alternative universes or slightly alternative universes, as in the case of Butler, or in um, other people's narratives so that you can engage with the content that is being relayed instead of having that affront and shut down because the content is first. So you tell things in a story because story is empathetic by its nature and it invites you into the, the um, process of what's being talked about. And then you can feel un, unguarded or you have your immediate reaction to something, um, just, what's the word? Your shields go down, sorry. I have a three-year-old and a nine-month-old, so my brain's a little bright. Um, your shields go down and you're able to have a better dialogue sometimes through the use of art or through the use of story than you would if you were gonna have a debate or something like that. Um, and it also, it also offers sometimes this highlighting of, what's really at the crux of the narrative. And that's, that's the point of that Nathan story is Nathan asks David a series of questions about the story. And that gets David to reveal the fact that he has in fact done harm and done action. And that's part of how art as prophecy functions is not only telling the story that's about the thing, but also you can engage with a story and that helps enlighten in spaces where maybe because the topic is a hot topic like abortion or um, the roles of women in culture, which is something that we're seeing right now being challenged, it, dis it disrobes and discards that. So first we're gonna talk 
to you about your dissertation. <laughs> so why don't you give us a little highlight of your dissertation and then we'll talk about how that functions as prophetic. Yeah, um, the really short version of the whole thing is that I establish five methodological pillars in the field of theopoetics and I situate them all in the work of Octavia Butler. That's the short end of it. If I was described theopoetics to you, the easiest way to do that is to say that it is the creative embodied practices and rhythms that we use to articulate sensibilities about the divine. Um, in doing so, these five pillars, which are emergent, embodied, liberative, creative, and speculative, help us to think through how we get into those crevices I talked about earlier, those spaces of, of mystery and complexity and emergence that we just don't necessarily know how to talk about God about, but there are practices and rhythms, particularly in the arts, that help us to kind of work through those things, right? To shape our imaginations in a way so that we can engage with God differently. And then that shapes how we engage with each other and with ourselves. Um, when it comes to the work of Octavia Butler, the reason I used her work is because uh, Butler does uh, what I haven't seen many theologians do, is she rightfully, and in all of the complexity, critiques and shows the ways in which religion, as she says, is used as a force for humankind to evoke change in the world. Now, she doesn't say if it's good or bad. She just says, this is what humankind has done throughout history. Um, and so what she does in this parable series, Parable of the Sword, Parable of the Talents, is she shows what happens if, as she's writing in the 90s, if we continue doing all of these things that she's seeing, this is the kind of world that we'll inherit. And she starts her world in 2024. And she gets probably closer than any other science fiction writer has, to the point that in the second book, there is a Christian fundamentalist group in the book called Christian America. And the leader of that group, the founder of that group gets elected president. And in a speech, he talks about that all of Americans need to come together to what? Make America great again. And this was written in 1998, right? So all of the things in which we're seeing now are kind of unfortunately coming to pass in this book. And so many people approached her and said, do you think this is prophecy? How do you feel about your work being prophecy? She goes, oh God, I hope not, <laughs> right? She didn't write it to come true. She wrote it so that we can do something different and steer away from these realities. Um, do you want me to just keep going into the prophecy bit? Yeah, cool. Um, so as we think about, so I'll start with speculative fiction and I'll work my way down. So when you think about broadly speculative fiction, which will include science fiction, fantasy, all of those different things, there are three areas, like really broad areas that they all kind of fit into, right? So the first one is like, what if? Like, what if aliens were real? And then there's a whole story based around the fact that people discovering another life force and then that shapes the whole thing, right? So what if? Secondly is if only. If only we could fly. Right? Then there's a whole story about that whole what if only. If only we can fly and then create a whole story. And the third is if we continue or if this then, which is basically if we continue doing what we're doing now, this is the world we'll inherit. And so all of your favorite dystopia fits within that. 1984, Handmaid's Tale, all of those things. They fit into that narrative. 
when we think about the prophetic tradition, particularly in the Hebrew text, it is quite literally the if this, then, right? There are two ways in which people always understand prophecy. The first is foretelling. You're going to tell me my future, right? You see this in a lot of stories, like Lord of the Rings and the prophecies fulfilled by, right? There's always some prophecies somebody's trying to fulfill about being somebody's savior to save the thing and they go through all of the adventures, right? But there's a second part of prophecy that I think fits more into what we've been talking about, and that's called forth telling. And that's basically speaking truth to power or naming the writing on the wall, right? And so when you think about a lot of the prophetic traditions in the Bible, some of them are, yeah, and you know, however many days God says God is going to do da 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 da. But even in those, most of it is this is happening, this is happening. Y'all thought y'all was doing this, but really what y'all are actually doing. It's this over here and y'all are not following what God said. Did God want all of this stuff y'all doing here? Or did God say this, right? And so as you're thinking about prophecy as foretelling and not foretelling, right? Truth telling and not prediction. A lot of Butler's work fits into the same vein of prophecy because what Butler is doing is essentially, this is the writing on the wall, right? These are the things that we are doing this is why that they are wrong. And if we do not change them, this is the world that we will inherit. She didn't predict anything. She just followed the traces to their natural end. And what has happened is because people did not heed, right? Or that the structures did not overall change. We are in some ways inheriting that world. And so what's interesting is, is that back then, there were people, it was one of her most popular series, you know, people read them, but it didn't make the bestsellers, um, New York Times bestseller until 2020. Because people started to realize, oh, a word I can't say here, this is really happening, right? And so with that, people started to read it and go, it's prophecy, it's prophecy. And it's like, yes, but most of the prophecy that we encounter are prophecy that can be avoided if they're, if they're predicting that we're going in the wrong direction. And so, I think what's really interesting is as we're thinking about stories that Butler put it, put it smack dab in a story, right? She puts it in the story of a 15 year old black girl who lives in LA is going through all of this stuff in the midst of economic and social upheaval. Her father is a Baptist minister and she literally starts her journey by saying, I got baptized on the day I realized my father's God is no longer my God, my God is a different name. And she creates another religion a 15 year old that's seeing what's happening in our world, recognizing that a lot of things have to change, recognizing that the theology and the God that she grew up with, it's not that that God doesn't exist, but that God is inadequate to help her survive this world that she's in. And so what does she do? She creates another religion with a God that has changed because that's the God that's gonna get her through to navigate this world. I think if we talk to a bunch of 15-year-olds right now, I think they'd have a lot in common with the character. And so there is something there that Butler does that gets us to think about, okay, are we Christian America? Are we the ones who are creating these spaces and these pockets of oppression in the name of a God, right? that doesn't help these young people survive the world that we didn't change and that we have set up? Or are we the community of Earthseed 
that are gonna begin to plant and establish new ways of engaging so that people can find radical ways of living in a world that seems out of control and won't do it being abandoned by God, but will learn to be partners with God in creating the worlds that are gonna be better, not just for them, but for their futures. So that's kind of where Butler sits and situates and I'm happy to answer literally any question you have. So yeah, as you can tell, Tamisha's dissertation topic is dealing with radical theology questions like we talk about here all the time, but through narrative. Um, so is there anything, I think what we'll do is I'm gonna ask Tamisha if there's anything else that offers to us in this context, and then we'll open it up for questions because I think that's probably the most fruitful use of our time. Yeah, I mean, um, she offers us an alternative, right, in her seed. But what's interesting is it's still complicated. Like you get to the end of the first book and you're like, yeah, her seed, woo, great. And then you start reading the second book, you're like, oh, snap, okay. Uh, she complicates things in a way that says that even as we are trying to find better spaces, right, spaces that'll take us to different places and create new worlds, we're still kind of tethered to the worlds that we're in, right? And that complicates things because we're human. And so what she, what she does and what she offers us is even as we're trying to create these utopias in the midst of, of dystopias, Margaret Atwood calls them eustopias. <laughs> I like that term. Um, even when she does that, she recognizes our humanity in it and it's never perfect. Nobody's ever off the hook. Lauren, who you love throughout the whole first book, gets real complicated in the second, right? And you start to question what her motives are. You start to question, right? A lot of what's happening, even though you know still at the core that she has done something very special. And I think that that lesson of humanity in the midst of change is one of the most important lessons Butler can leave us. A lot of people think it's we get a whole new religion, but really, she really shows us what it means to struggle to find better spaces and partner with God in them and to utilize religion in the midst of that. Um, I think that that's, that's her greatest gift in that series. There's a whole bunch of other stuff with vampires and time travel and lots of fun things. But for that one, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, does anybody have any questions for Tamisha or about Butler for Tamisha or just about religion and art in general? It's totally open. Jump in. We got a mic. You don't have to be afraid. Bueller, questions? Steve. So like a lot of people, and actually at your suggestion, I read <laughs> Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents over the last uh, couple years. Um, and while the, like you just mentioned, the first book is very uplifting and positive, or I mean, it's dark, but uplifting sort of in its story. The second book was purely bleak um in so much of it and then i understand if you're one of the few people who have some strong knowledge that uh of the third book in what was going to be the trilogy that octavia butler was going to write and chose not to because it was too dark for even her so i'm wondering if how that speaks to how she was viewing 
the future and maybe our in like our connection to how we change the world that what what she was writing started with this oh we can view this change and then just continued to get to this place where she said i don't even want to look at what this is potentially becoming anymore yeah, there's some really interesting things about that. Thank you for that question. For those of you who are in the back and probably didn't hear, he was asking about um, the third book, which is called um, Goddess. Is it Goddess Clay or Goddess Trickster? I forget. I think it's Goddess Trickster. Um, and what happened because it was unfinished. Octavia Butler suddenly died in 2006. And so we were never given a other series of books that she was going to write. What's interesting is that the original idea for this series was actually the third book. So the original idea was based on um, her deep, deep, deep love for environmental justice um, and, and, and climate change. That was her first kind of book and why she started writing this series. And it was going to be about a group of people who went off world to inhabit or colonize another planet. And the planet started starts rejecting them, right? So there's all these biological crazy things that are happening to them um, and the planet is trying to get them off as a way of critiquing climate change, right? Or critiquing the lack of people engaging in climate change. Well, what happened is as she's thinking about the backstory, how did these people get here? What organized them here? How did they, that's when she began to write the first two books. So in some ways there's a theory that the first two books are actually the prequels to the original idea. Um, Butler did not finish because yes, they're very, very dark and depressing and she was dealing with her own depression um, that created a whole series of writer's blocks. So that's how we get Fledgling, which is the vampire novel because she took a break and she wrote a vampire novel, um, which you do apparently. Um, so I think a lot of it is the sense that she was trying to work through not only her own depression, right? And dealing with the chemicals in her own body, particularly as she was dealing with her blood pressure medication that was causing that depression, but she was also dealing with the darkness of and the, the, the hardness of the kinds of worlds that she had to create. Um, and so it just became too heavy for her. So she, the, the longest that we have is like maybe 40 to 60 pages of a draft, um, but we'll never know, we'll never know. But I think that that, I mean, Dealing with the realities of our world and writing in that vein can be really, really tough, right? How do you, one, the, the amount of attention that you have to pay to humanity and to the world. And I think this is really the, the beauty of both artists and prophets, right? It's not about what the artist makes. It's not necessarily about what the prophet says. It's about what they see right? They, are, they have a particular way of seeing and through their medium, either through speaking or through making, they bring that into the world, right? So that we too can see differently, right? Um, and I think that that is something particularly unique that we don't really pay attention to for both artists and prophets and those who inhabit both of those spaces like Butler. But um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's complicated. I don't think she's ever written anything uncomplicated, but um, yeah, it took a toll on her, definitely. Any other questions for Tanisha? 
for questions in general. It Zoom. doesn't have to be about Butler. It can literally be about anything. Yes, we can answer questions about anything in this realm, hopefully. Um, anybody on Zoom have any questions? Oh, okay. I was like, why does everybody keep looking behind me? I didn't know. <laughs> There's a question in the back. Yes. And if you can say your name, that would be awesome. Hi, I just have a really simple one for you. And you might have already gone over, but what uh, encouraged you to kind of do the line of work that you do? Um, and like all the research and what kind of spurred you on? Yeah. Um, so going back to that first week of school and I, you know, you write an application and get into the program, you immediately forget what you put. I don't know what I wrote. It's something like, you know, artists and spiritual formation. I don't know. I made it up so I can get in, you know. Um, and so I thought that I was going to explore arts in some interesting way. And then that event happened where the young man was killed by police. And that kind of shaped and changed everything of that school year. And once we started doing the, the subversive liturgy project and writing original liturgical services in this way, I think it just kind of shaped that whatever I had to do, it had to center some kind of justice oriented, um, how are we operating as community? How are we moving towards liberation? Like how are we changing the world that we're in, right? And it made me question as an artist, as a liturgist, as a scholar, how am I changing the world? What am I contributing? I'm not an organizer. I'm not going out like creating protests, right? What do I contribute? So that was the beginnings of that. And so I got burned out. I took a break in the summer of 2017 and a friend of mine gave me tickets to go see the Octavia Butler exhibit. And I was like, oh, I loved her book. Why did I stop reading her? Blah, blah, blah. And then I read Parable of Sower. I had no idea what I was getting into. I was only reading fiction that summer my only homework was to read fiction and to catch up on Game of Thrones. That's all I was doing that summer. And I read it and I was like, this is it. Like, this is the thing that we all need to be reading and talking about. The way that she's thinking about everything that's happening in our world right now. And she's doing it through the arts and she's creating religion like, this is what we need to be talking about. And so it was through that discovery that led me to take all of the things that were kind of in my world and focus it in on her work and say, how do I, how do we, what are the artists doing? How are we changing the world? And so that's what led me to that. So thank you for that question. Next question. You can ask more than one question. Let me ask, let me ask you two, <laughs> for both of you, one question. Um, in this conversation about art and religion, and uh, or even specifically about prophecy, um, where are some spaces in art where you see that occurring today, where uh, that you are seeing really good, strong uh, intersections between art and religion, regardless of the medium, or where you see people who are uh, practicing that prophetic voice using that their artistic medium um, that stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, we think about today, when we think about our history, so many communities of color have been doing this naturally, both in their churches and in their, um, in their quests for liberation forever, right? Um, Theopoetics has its 
origins in radical theology, right, in a response to the death of God movement. But even in that time, right, in the 60s, when that was like dawning, the Black church was engaging in art, prophetic voice, right, and social change, just a result of the civil rights movement. And so I think that there are so many ways in which communities of color have naturally done this and continue to naturally do this, um, not without complexity, right? But they do. And so I think that there's a really um, great historical through line that we can investigate at those intersections, right? When it comes to like communities of color and especially as it relates to spaces of change, social change. Um, currently, I think, um, I think it was great that you read from and fleshed, right? Their organization that's really doing that work, right? Creating liturgies that tie into a lot of this, right? Um, this here, Flesh by Cole Arthur Riley is another liturgical example of that. Um, we're starting a liturgy company that's only, we create liturgies by and for people of color, right? Called Kinship Commons, that's another example of that. Um, there are some artists that are doing some really good work. I'd probably recommend Ashan Crawley. Um, he's a scholar and an artist uh, known for his work, Black Pentecostal Breath, and he does incredible art pieces. Um, I think even when you get into pockets outside of just Christianity, you'll find that there are uh, many artists who care about the spirituality or, or like the, the, the inner life of a person that they may not necessarily call religion, um, but it is in that care of that inner life they're tapping into some things that I think um, most churches aren't. So that's just my quick. Yeah, I would affirm a lot of those, all of those actually, not a lot, all of them. And just in general, like people like Blair Mani, who are artists and storytellers who are doing work um, and a lot of queer theologians, like we talk about, um, Marcella Thanis read a lot because she's a radical theologian, but she's also a queer theologian and her work is always narrative and it always is doing that work. We see um, in a lot of the creative pushback um, to the overturning of Roe and the um, threat to gay marriage and interracial marriage and contraception and things like that, you're seeing people go back to um, the Matthew Shepard project. And so at protests is now, we're seeing the angels that we had from Matthew Shepard project in the early 90s surrounding, surrounding um, row protesters and being the boundaries in a very creative, beautiful way between row protesters and white evangelical supremacists who want to control everybody's bodies. And we're seeing that resurgence. I think when we have protests and when we have communities, whether, you know, we're in this weird place where we're being controlled by a minority population. And so the majority is doing because we're under a minority rule with a broad majority that is against the minority rule you also see that kind of broad dynamic creative action because when anytime we've had protests whether it's the Dalit movement which is the um, untouchable class in india there's a liturgical practice and there's a embodied creative practice that happens. We see that in 
South and Central America through the 70s and 60s with the rise of liberation protests. We're seeing that again now, the color green throughout South America and into the US now as a color, and I think Poland as well, as the pro-abortion color that's being used creatively to challenge these groups of old white men who want to control people's bodies, um, that that art is always, there's always those artists that are working in conjunction with, along with movements that are challenging hegemonic controlling entities. Um, we're seeing a lot of the movies and the arts either celebrating just minority cultures. Like there's this great film on Amazon Prime called, um, what is it called? An up, up, North Wedding, it's Up North Wedding, Up Top Wedding. It's an Australian film that came out two years ago. I think it's two years ago. And it's just this nice, fun, wedding caper kind of movie that's celebrating indigenous culture in this really beautiful way. And I saw it because um, it was like, what to watch after this really great movie that premiered last week on Prime called um, I don't want to go, and it's about a single father who, who has been told he has a brain tumor, and so he's taking his 15-year-old daughter on a road trip to meet her estranged mother, and they're, they're just these creative stories, but that narrative is, is a conversation we're seeing because of COVID. We're seeing families who have been decimated because of COVID, and there's only one parent, or the family dynamics are so so shattered that you have children who only have one parent, one family member who are connected to them and them needing because of health issues, things that come up normally, needing more family and how does family form. And so even basic stories like that are these sideway narratives, these sideway artistic pieces into conversations around, we need broader community support for families because we let a pandemic run wild and we've decimated families. There are many children who don't have parents now because of COVID or only have one parent. Um, so there's a lot of, I think a lot of the art that's being made right now, maybe outside of a weird stratosphere of like pop art with the Kardashians or something like that is really on some level questioning how have we been living, whether it's climate change, whether it's um, intersections with COVID, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's Christian right, we're having that fleshed out. And the two artists we're gonna talk about, talk with next week, really are at that intersection of critiquing um, colloquially what we would call cults or high control groups like fundamentalist evangelicalism or Mormonism, um, FLDS Mormonism mostly. Um, and um, the power and the control that are coming from the religious right. So their pieces really flush that out and do some parody of it and do some critique of it, things like that. I think it's also important to mention that um, Beyonce's Break My Soul was very intentional, right? 
there's a joy element that I think artists are getting into as well, right? They're naming exactly what's happening in the world, but they're not forsaking the spaces of joy and fun and dance that are absolutely necessary, especially after what we've gone through as a collective community in the last few years, last few decades, last few forever, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think that there's an element of yeah, you won't break my soul. What, what are those spaces, right? We, we in womanist theology call it the clearing space, right? Where you can dance and cry and laugh because out there, they don't, they don't love your flesh, but here you get to be a full person, right? There are artists, even as they are naming those things that are also creating those spaces where you can enter in and be your full self. Um, and so I always tell people, if you wanna find those spaces, don't follow the money, follow the artists. And I think that they will lead you to some really generative, spaces so I think to tag team on that that's something that I think those of us coming out of like white Protestantism especially we weren't trained to find joy we were trained somebody had a quote recently I did not screenshot it that um one of the most terrifying things about Christian nationalism is it comes out of a brand of Christianity that has no capacity for joy and so their view of life is suffering a white Protestant view of life whether it's the, whether it's continental Europe Protestantism, whether it's the Puritans, hence the name Puritans, right? There's no capacity for joy. And so one of the most radical acts we can do as people and as artists and as people who don't want Christian nationalism to control the world is to engage in acts of radical care and radical joy and in the midst of um, life find those moments of beauty and celebration and celebrate loudly and proudly and delightfully. And that's something we also see encounter in, in the protest movements globally, historically, is there is a key into joy. There is a, a living this one beautiful life well, no matter what the external circumstances are. And that's something that, you know, white Protestantism really, really doesn't understand and it doesn't know what to do with. Don't be shy. Yeah, I think we have you time be for shy. like one more question, Bob, maybe time-wise, one more question. So if you have something that's been sitting there and you wanted to ask, feel free or talk to us afterwards. It's not a hold your peace thing. Hello, I'm Rodney. Hello. I'm just curious how all your research and studies affected your own personal religious beliefs. Yeah, that's a, that's a really excellent question, Rodney. And I say that so that I can have extra time to think about <laughs> the answer to that question. Um, my own religious beliefs have always, well, I'll say this, my religious beliefs have always been evolving and emerging. Um, engaging in this research confirmed that that was okay. That in this space of engaging with God, that my questions, my, <laughs> I don't know about this, my changing my mind, my going back and forth could be held in this space with God. Um, I think one of the things, like you said, like certain religious traditions don't have space for joy. There's a certain religious traditions that I inherited that 
don't allow you to trust yourself, right? And I'm like, well, God gave me my brain and my emotions and my intuition and my, so how do I learn to honor those things that God has given me and to trust that that is a part of my journey as well? And so I think in my, my research, I learned a lot about that. Um, and to be unafraid about going out, trying crazy things. I'll tell everybody, because some people would be like, what? I've been asked a lot, are you Christian? But yes, I am, right? I just don't feel bound to one way of doing that. And I think that this research confirmed that that evolution and that emergence is necessary in my journey with God. And so I think that's the, that's the one thing that I learned. Well, we're gonna close out now, but we're gonna talk more next week with two other artists, Mike Hernandez and Astrid Sundal. And we're gonna have their pieces up um, visually and we'll have them talk a little bit in the same kind of dynamic. So hopefully you liked what we did and you're gonna join us next week. Yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. I did just wanna share, I had uh, somebody from Zoom who had said, I love these women. I would love to hear from them all day. And so I'm curious if um, other places where we can encounter your work. I know you've just finished a dissertation um, or places that you speak. Where can, where can we hear more of that's you? An, that's an excellent question. Um, I do have a website. It's TamishaTyler.com. I'll send it to y'all so y'all have it. Perfect. Um, there are some blogs in there. They're really old though. So I need to like revamp everything. <laughs> Um, everything is in process because I just finished and I'm crawling out of a hole. So um, I will keep you posted as those things come down the line. Perfect. That sounds great. I also have a website. It is very new and I have scholarly articles and book chapters that I've written on the area of religion and art um, on there. And it is, I think it's Jesse with an I, knipple.com, but I will send it to you. Um, and then I'm here a lot, so I ask questions when I'm doing stuff a lot. That is very um, true, and you've spoken numerous times here I've at Central I've spoken several already. times here. Um, there's some past recordings of me preaching at our previous church, which was Mission Gathering Pasadena. So those are from last year, if you want to hear. There is lots of swearing in that, just FYI. Um, I will be starting a podcast as part of my dissertation topic. So that will be coming out hopefully, well, I have to submit my proposal. Um, so by January, I will have submitted my proposal and hopefully by spring, I will be podcasting about what I'm finding in my dissertation research. Um, and yeah, perfect. that's, I don't know. When people ask, we show up. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for both being here. And as you guys know, um, we have been ending our services uh, recently with a kind of um, communal benediction um, and charge. And so I'm going to put this up in the screen and we can um, say these words together as a commitment of uh, who we are as a community and some of the values that we hold. Um, also, the music that will be playing as we kind of head out and you guys converse is a uh, playlist specifically curated by Jesse with the ideas, music uh, about the kinds of things that um, she and Tamisha were sharing this morning. Um, but let's join in these words together as we go from here. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves as Christ did to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, 
and each other. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.